Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is the Apocrypha Part 2. Um, in Part 1, we established that there is an ecclesiastical or historical church tradition that rejects the Apocrypha, contrary to what we often hear against Protestants. And then we looked at some of that historical evidence and briefly summarized the Apocrypha contents. I argued that we can hold fast to the Protestant confessions, other Reformation that said that the Apocrypha is not inspired scripture, but still edifying. And I would add that it is particularly edifying to understand the context of the New Testament and the cultural background of the New Testament. So in this episode, we are going to look at the Apocrypha books or the Deuterocanonical books summarize their contents, and then briefly talk about how they influenced either Jews or the New Testament or early Christians. And so because of the nature of this episode, a little bit of it is picking and choosing based off of what I feel like I wanted to include and what I didn't want to include. Uh, before we begin, just a reminder that Christ of the Cure is listener supported, and you can become a part of the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure, where there are some perks to being in various tiers, including some PDFs. One of those PDFs being a fancy uh, PDF of the show notes for Apocrypha Part 1, and then there will be a PDF for Part 2. So what books are we going to be looking at? Well, we're going to be looking at Tobit, Judith, the additions to Esther, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, or uh, Sirach, or Wisdom of Jesus, uh, Barak, the letter of Jeremiah, which is technically Barak chapter 6. Uh, the editions of Daniel, which is the prayer of Ezariah and the Song of the Three Jews. Susanna and Bell and the Dragon. First through fourth Maccabees. First and second Esdras, the prayer of Manasseh and Psalm 151. My recommended resources for this episode are the same as our last episode. That is Introducing the Apocrypha by De Silva. And then if you're wanting to read the Apocrypha with brief introductions and context, you can pick up the new Oxford Annotated Apocrypha. That's the new Revised Standard Version. And they do have one that is included with the 66 books of the Protestant canon. And then they have one that's by itself. I have the one that's by itself and it includes notes. It's like a little study Bible on the Apocrypha. Very nice edition, simple and to the point. So let's get to it. Let's talk about Tobit. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be grouping some of these books up in ways that they're not normally grouped. For example, 1st Ezra and 2nd Ezra is usually separate in lists. And then the same thing with 1st and 2nd Maccabees and then 3rd and 4th Maccabees usually have some books between them. I'm going to condense those just because that's how I wanted to organize them. So the book of Tobit, um, the author is unknown and it's thought to be originally written in Aramaic or Hebrew. But really, we only have fragments of the text. But at any rate, Tobit is about a figure named Tobit who is exiled with his wife Anna and Tobias, his son, following the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom in 722, and that's in BC. So Tobit finds himself in the service of a foreign ruler. Uh, that is, he is a, um, a servant in the court of the Assyrian king, and Tobit eventually is removed from his position. He is persecuted for his Jewish distinctives, and he is eventually blinded by bird droppings. The themes here are kind of reminiscent of what you would find with Job and Daniel kind of meshed together. 
But basically, you find Tobit at the end of his rope praying for death, uh, which is paralleled with his relative, Sarah, who has a demon killing her grooms-to-be. She has been um, planned to be wed to seven men, but on the wedding night, a demon has killed her groom-to-be. Now, eventually, an angel will appear uh, disguised as a traveling companion for Tobit's son, Tobias. Tobias is going to media to exorcise those demons, marry Sarah, and travel back to Nineveh with a cure for his father's blindness. Eventually, he succeeds, and that's how the story wraps up, and that's very condensed, as you can guess. Ultimately, whenever we look at Tobit as a book, the author seems to lack an understanding of geography, and additionally, an authorship is heavily debated, but most people will place it around the 3rd century BC because it lacks any discussion surrounding the issue of Hellenization. And again, Hellenization is the idea of the spread and influence of Greek culture or Hellenism. So the genre for the book has also been debated, but because of the geographical issues along with other historical issues, it's been considered a romance. And whenever I say romance, I mean in the literary sense a piece of literature that is a narrative that works for entertainment, edification, and so forth, rather than like romances and love. So the book has a focus upon the proper maintenance of Jewish identity in the midst of being scattered away from the temple. There is also an emphasis on bonds between Jewish family, along with a focus on following the Torah, uh, particularly on acts of charity and the character of God. So there's a lot of overlap between Tobit and the New Testament uh, particularly whenever it comes to practical exhortations regarding alms and other works. Um, good works, right? So the overlaps you can find in texts like Luke 14, 13, where it states, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And Tobit 2, 2, for example, says, go, my child, and bring whatever poor person you may find of our people among the exiles in Nineveh, who is wholeheartedly mindful to God. So the parallels often amount to uh, these practical exhortations, uh, especially in regards to giving alms without grudges and accordance to your means. Further, in Tobit, alms are seen to be a benefit for the giver in terms of their heavenly treasure, and giving alms is better than laying up gold, and you see this in Tobit 12.8. Now, you can see this being echoed in Jesus' discussion in Luke 12.33-34, and just as well, Tobit actually presents the golden rule, but in a more negative articulation. So Tobit says, And what you hate, do not do to anyone. Do not drink wine to excess or let drunkenness go with you on your way. And that's in 4.15. Now, because of the nature of these parallels, it's hard to say whether or not they're directly tied to Tobit or just general understandings, especially with the golden rule, because the golden rule finds itself first in Leviticus 18, and you find this stream of thought throughout Second Temple literature. So next we have Judith. Uh, the book of Judith is named after the primary protagonist of the writing, Judith. And the narrative would be admired by Christians and Jewish individuals in various ways. So in Jewish traditions, Judith is celebrated as a hero who protected her people. While in Christian streams, Judith exemplifies virtue. The date of the book is typically placed around the end of the 2nd century BC after the Maccabean Revolt. And it is debated whether or not it was translated from Hebrew or Aramaic, or if it's Greek originally. Now, what's interesting about Judith is that Judith presents itself as a historical narrative. Uh, and this has 
cause people to say it's not a historical narrative because there are blatant historical errors in this book. And so uh, typically those historical errors are kind of moved aside by saying, well, this is obviously a Greek or Roman type novel where there's a blend of history and fiction. And so the historical errors are explained by that. Uh, they're, they're purposeful rather than mistakes. And one famous mistake um, that is often pointed out is that Judith opens with a rise of a threat to Israel and it's King Nebuchadnezzar of the Assyrians. And that's one of the historical errors. It further will say that Nebuchadnezzar ruled in Nineveh. Um, some say that perhaps this is a code name for another, like Antiochus. But regardless, there have been various theories about which parts are the true history and what true history is encoded. Uh, but De Silva points out the book, in fact, seems to combine allusions to events that transpire over five centuries of real-life history, but no single period could possibly contain all the people, movements, and events. The work is better read as a piece of historical fiction. As you read through Judith, you find the first seven chapters dedicated to discussing the rise of the evil of Nebuchadnezzar, where the general of Nebuchadnezzar happens upon Judith's village. Judith then enters into the text in chapter 8, and she is described as a pious widow who defies her social gender norms in order to save the Jewish village and defend God against the enemies and their false gods. Through chapter 16, she is depicted as heroic and virtuous, and the book echoes the Old Testament in placing Judith in the role likened to a judge that we would find in, of course, judges. Uh, and she's also likened to Moses. Now, Judith in scholarship has controversy around Judith's methods of seeking to showcase the lack of honor of her enemies. Uh, she uses various types of deception and misleads them in order to bring honor to God. Uh, so this discussion is, is a big discussion about the, the moral integrity of the book in itself. But this is not really the discussion we're going to have here. But it's worth noting as we at least reflect on Judith in passing. So in terms of Judith's influence, there doesn't seem to be much influence on the New Testament authors. Ultimately, all the parallels that could be found could be explained by the Old Testament first and foremost. On the flip side of that, uh, Judith was influential for those who came after the apostles, such as Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria. Them, along with Tertullian, viewed Judith as an exemplary woman who remained widowed and celibate, and its canonical status was split. Most, except for Jerome in the West, seem to have seen it as canonical to one degree or another. While in the East, it was seen as non-canonical by figures such as Melito of Sardis and Athanasius. So let's talk about Greek Esther. This is a version of Esther from the 2nd or 1st century BC. It's a translation of the Hebrew book into Greek, but it also includes additional verses into the work. The history of Greek Esther is actually kind of complicated, and so we won't spend too much time here discussing the transmission of the text. Instead, we will point out that there are an additional 105 verses in the Greek text of Esther. The contents includes a dream of Mordecai and a discovery of a plot against the king, an edict from Haman against the Jews, uh, the prayers of Mordecai and Esther, Esther's appearance before the throne, the edict from Mordecai that counters Haman's edict and the interpretation of Mordecai's dream. So basically, you find expansions upon the narrative overall. Mary Joan Winley 
points out that these additions give the narrative more religious character and create new emphasis. Um, there is an inclusion of an apocalyptic perspective in regards to good versus evil. There are more contrasts between the earthly king and the heavenly king and various editions of the terms Lord and God, where the Hebrew narrative famously lacks any reference to them. And that's one of the famous reasons why Esther struggled with canonical status that we discussed in part one. Ultimately, these additions or expansions to the book have been deemed unoriginal to the original Esther for a number of reasons. The first being that without the expansions, the story is coherent. And with them, there are contradictions such as with the fate of Haman and his sons and just the general timelines. At the end of the day, these additions of Greek Esther didn't really have any significant impact. And that's probably because of Esther's um, position in the canon overall. Next, we will look at the wisdom of Solomon, sometimes called wisdom. And unlike Greek Esther and its low impact, the wisdom of Solomon would actually be highly impactful, especially in the early church post the apostles. So De Silva points out that wisdom is perhaps the most important of the Apocrypha in terms of its impact upon the early church during the most formative centuries of Christian theology. Sometimes the wisdom of Solomon, like I said, is called the Book of Wisdom, but it gets its former name in that it is framed as if King Solomon is speaking, uh, similar to what you find in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The name never actually appears in the text, however, and early Christians recognized that Solomon's authorship was highly unlikely. Michael Kollerick points out that within this writing, there are various styles of writings that include a Hellenistic Jewish context, such as the utilization of Aristotle's genres and styles. And he concludes that the author seems to be highly educated uh, from Alexandria, who is a Jew, writing between 30 BC and 40 AD. So there's a pretty good spread there. De Silva points out that the debates on the dating range from 220 BC to 100 AD, however. Further, um, it is stated that this book provides a means to bolster the faith of young Jews in the midst of Hellenism and Rome, especially within the context of Alexandria. Thus, he finds agreement with the Silva, who states that the date within the early period of Roman domination of Egypt seems the most likely. So evidence for this can really be seen in that the author describes a cult's origins that aligns very closely to the imperial cult that we seem bolstered by Augustus. And you can see this in Wisdom 14, 16 through 20. Additionally, Wisdom 14.22 seems to take a stab at the Pax Romana, which um, states, though living in great strife due to ignorance, they call such great evils peace. Now, if you don't know, the Pax Romana, meaning Roman peace, was a product of Octavian or Augustus' victories, and it was a means of propaganda to legitimize the Roman rule. So prior to Augustus's victories, the Roman world was basically filled with civil war, rebellion, and various internal power struggles. But Augustus came in as a savior and ended the war with a consolidation and centralization of imperial power. So essentially, Rome was marked by peace and security and the subduing of its enemies and the centralization of this power. And so the big banner that was waved was peace and security through Rome, and you actually see Paul making a stab at that as well. Anyway, the book can be broken up into three sections, uh, where there is first an exhortation to love justice, to gain immortality and avoid death, which comprises the first six chapters. And second, there is a praise of divine wisdom, which makes 
uh, one friends with God, and this goes through chapter 11. And lastly, there's a discussion on the Exodus, and the Exodus is used as an example of the providence of God, and you see this in chapters 11 through 19. So like we said, this book had a prominent influence, and so much so that even those who deemed it non-canonical saw it as acceptable for uh, liturgy and of high praise. Now, if you tuned into the Through Nicaea series, uh, specifically on the Eternal Generation of the Sun episodes, you'll remember we had this brief discussion on this book in regards to our understanding of the personification of wisdom. Now, in chapter 6 through 9, we find this being the case here, right? We find wisdom being personified to more of an extent than previously in Old Testament literature. Uh, so, what's interesting is that in this book, wisdom is treated as an emanation of God rather than a created being. And we read this particularly in Wisdom 7, 25 through 26. For she is a breath of the power of God, a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness, end quote. So further, wisdom is indicated to be uh, an agent and a companion of creation who enters into human beings and makes them friends with God. And wisdom can only be attained through prayer. Wisdom is pictured as the uh, entire realm of learning, while Ben Sira, that we will talk about in a little bit, um, places wisdom in relation to the Torah observance in particular. So, through wisdom, so says the author of wisdom, one can be trained in all realms of education, including Greek education, um, because wisdom grants facility in all subjects comprehended within the curriculum of a Greek school, such as philosophy, physics, history, uh, and so on. So essentially, the figure of wisdom acts as a mediator between God and man, and this becomes significant expansions to the personification of wisdom that we looked at with the Old Testament and how the Jews understood wisdom in the Old Testament, um, and we, which is obviously reflected in this particular book. Now, what's interesting is that the New Testament seems to pick up on this picture and corrects it a little bit. For example, the author of Hebrews says that it is the Son who reflects God's glory and who is the exact imprint of God's very nature. And so while the relationship is close to God in similar terms, it is not wisdom, but the Son who has this position. Further, what's interesting is that where wisdom of Solomon is used the most is in Paul. Um, there are notable parallels between Romans 1, 19 through 32 and Wisdom 13, 1 through 9 and 14, 22 through 27. Uh, it, basically, they both speak about Gentiles being without excuse, yet they turn to worship created things and they lead themselves into more ignorance of God and wickedness because of that. Paul also alludes to wisdom in Romans 9, along with Ben Sirah in that he states something similar to Wisdom 15.7. Wisdom 15.7 says, The potter makes out of the same clay both the vessels that serve clean uses and those for contrary uses. Of course, there is a parallel of this analogy in Jeremiah, I believe. And so um, it, it's kind of hard to say, well, you know, th this is a direct allusion just to this wisdom literature, but wisdom literature seems to be piggybacking off of Jeremiah and it's one of those things. Um, what is what is particularly fascinating, however, is that whenever we come to the description of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 11 through 17, that we all know pretty well, we actually find a closer relationship with wisdom 5, 17 through 20 
than we do with Isaiah 59 through 15. Um, De Silva points this out, both wisdom and Ephesians speak of God's whole armor and adds references to the shield and sword beyond the helmet and breastplate, because Isaiah only mentions the helmet and breastplate. Um, he continues, while Ephesians is clearly aware of Isaiah's description of God's armor, it thus also shows signs of direct awareness of wisdom's early expansions of that image. So there are other allusions to wisdom that occur here um, and there in the New Testament, but but where it really sticks out is when it comes to those Christological discussions regarding the relation between wisdom, Jesus, eternal generation, and so forth that we discussed in Through Nicaea. So next, let's talk about Ecclesiasticus, also called the wisdom of Jesus, or Ben Sira, or Son of Sirach, or Sirach, has several names. I usually call it Sirach, or I refer to its author, Ben Sira. As you can guess, the author's name was Jesus, Son of Sirach. Um, this book would also be heavily influential. Um, in, the, in the Latin church, it was known as Ecclesiasticus, which means belonging to the church. Yet in most manuscripts, it had the title Wisdom of Jesus or Son of Sirach. Sometimes it is called Sirach for short. And ultimately, this book was never included in the Jewish canon, but it came close uh, and it was still seen as significant, very significant. And Ben Sirach's grandson is actually the one who notes that he is the one who translated this work that we have today in the preface. So this is one of the few works where the author is explicitly identified. His name is Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus, um, son of Sira. Ben Sira worked in a house of instruction where he trained men for careers as scribes or sages. It is typically said that this work was originally written in Hebrew uh, around 180 BC, prior to the tensions with the Seleucids and the Maccabean Revolt. And a lot of the contents are governed by the value of honor, shame, uh, particularly with material wealth, influence, and reputation. Uh, but there is no consensus on the structure of the literature, and that the author seems to employ a wide variety of literary forms. Additionally, the book is the longest book of wisdom literature from ancient Judaism that we have, and it focuses heavily upon the instruction, law, or Torah, um, uh, particularly within his contemporary setting as it relates to wisdom. Basically, at the center of pursuing wisdom is following the law. One point worth noting about Ben Sira's work is the focus on, again, the personification of Lady Wisdom, who he notes is the first of God's creation and the gift of God to those who fear God. He also places wisdom and Torah, or law, side by side, noting that if one desires wisdom, they will keep the commandments, and that in wisdom there is a fulfillment of the law. Now, further in chapter 24, Ben Sira removes the mythology and personification of wisdom, which is quite interesting. So he begins by personifying wisdom, and then eventually he removes that by directly correlating wisdom with the law. And so for the author, wisdom is to be found in the Torah, and by doing the Torah, and the one who is disciplined by the Torah gains wisdom. Ben Sira is known to be highly commended in its practical wisdom of speech, friendship, ethics, and placing side-by-side -side, uh, the wisdom literature within the Old Testament context of the Torah and living in this context. But Ben Sira has also been heavily critiqued for its statements against women and daughters and about sinners in general. It has a very anti-Gentile uh, polemic that kind of falls in a weird place if you compare it with the teachings of Jesus. Um, for example, in Wisdom 22.3, 
Bensira states that the birth of a daughter is a loss. And in 42.14, he says, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. Uh, so Trinchard notes that Bensira often takes his source material on women, such as Proverbs, and changes the materials by omitting the positive statements or by making those positive statements neutral or negative. So overall, for Bensira, the, the good wife is the one who remains good so long as she is useful and desirable to her husband and Ben Sira is also the first to mention that Eve is to blame for the fall, while also speaking of warnings for those who have daughters. So in addition to the practical wisdom and this critique, Ben Sira also talks about the question of God's sovereignty and human will. He discusses the questions of sin and human responsibility and God's um, omnipotence, uh, essentially discussing the topic of theodicy, that is the problem of evil, right? So Ben Sira comes out looking like a compatibilist, if you know what that is, and so he kind of oscillates in that tension. He makes this statement that human beings are capable to move within their own freedom of free choice, and he will also argue that they are capable of doing that which is righteous. Additionally, he states that each person has the power to choose or bear responsibility for their actions. On the flip side of this, Ben Sira ascribes to God the initiative of making certain individuals able to receive mercy while others are hardened with the results of destruction. And so God has given sovereign rights as it pertains to election, yet for Ben Sira, it is still within the power of mankind to find and obey God. Their eventual destiny does not determine their choices or remove their responsibility. Um, to highlight this, we can read uh, chapter 15, verses 11 through 13. It says, quote, In the fullness of his knowledge, the Lord distinguishes them and appointed their different ways. Some he blessed and exalted, and some he made holy and brought near to himself, but some he cursed and brought low and turned them out of their place. Like clay in the hand of the potter to be molded as he pleased, so are all in the hand of their maker to be given whatever he decides. So Ben Sira covers a lot of ground. He was a highly revered um, sage and referenced by rabbis for a long time. Yet he was not considered inspired so his book was not considered canonical by the Jews, especially because of his words against wisdom and daughters. And what we find is that like the other rabbis who would enjoy the use of Ben Sirah on his admirable sayings, Jesus, James, and Paul do the same. Uh, De Silva points out that none of the New Testament authors actually quotes Ben Sirah, but several of the more prominent among them, Matthew, Luke, Paul, and James, weave into their own teachings lessons already attested in the writings of this sage. So there are some parallels between Jesus and Ben Sira that are notable, um, so much so that Jesus appears to know and value the sayings of this popular writer to some extent. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are various points of connection, such as how Jesus expands on the law by extending the range and application of the commandments um, such as setting aside anger against a neighbor, addressing God as Father, uh, giving to the one who asks, mirroring God's love, not harboring forgiveness, lest you not have forgiveness yourself. Uh, but also Ben Sira also speaks to laying up one's treasure for oneself. But the distinction is that Ben Sira points out that this treasure helps one against future turmoil, while Jesus doesn't state that, but instead points to the eschatological realization of one's treasure. So there are some points of agreement and there are some points of significant disagreement. For example, uh, we see Jesus telling one to love their enemies while Ben Sira says, give to the one who's good, but do not help the sinner in 12.7. Additionally, there are a couple of parallels where Jesus appears to 
um, parallel Bensira, as it seems to me to be a lesson for the Pharisees. So he, he seems to be using their knowledge of Bensira against them. And you can see this in the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector featured in Luke 18, 10 through 14. We find that the tax collector will be forgiven for lamenting and asking for mercy, but the Pharisee does not receive forgiveness while he believes his offering will be enough. So basically the Pharisee never asked for forgiveness, but assumes it because of his works. Now in Ben Sira, there's specific references saying, this is not how you do this thing. And so it's almost like Jesus uses Ben Sira to say, hey, you guys should know this, even by your own sages that you admire. Um, and in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, there's also another parallel and that Ben Sira and three passages urges people to come to wisdom and take the yoke of wisdom upon themselves. Uh, and this is the invitation of wisdom. Uh, just as well, James in his epistle has parallels with Ben Sira when it comes to speech in particular. Um, so th this is one passage in Sirach. It's chapter 5, uh, verses 9 through 14. And you can think back on James' epistle and just compare for yourself. Do not winnow with every wind and do not follow every road. For a double-tongued sinner is of such a kind. Be established in your understanding and let your word be consistent. Be quick to listen and give your answer with patience. If you have understanding, answer your neighbor. But if not, let your hand be over your mouth. There is glory and dishonor in speech, and a man's tongue may cause him to fall. Do not be called a slanderer, and do not lie in ambush with your tongue. For shame awaits a thief, and a grievous condemnation will come upon a double-tongued man. Additionally, um... As we said earlier about Paul in Romans 9, you find some parallels on the potter and the clay there, and even in how he articulates sovereignty and responsibility. In post-New Testament writings, Ben Sira's influence is found in the Didache, which is the ethical manual for Christians, essentially. Next, we will talk about Barak. I think that's how you say it. Um, Barak was the scribe of Jeremiah, and this book is attributed to the scribe of Jeremiah. Now, the book locates the author in Babylonian exile of the early 6th century, even though Jeremiah 43, 1 through 7 notes that Barak and Jeremiah went to Egypt, not Babylon in 582. So there's a discrepancy there. But as Matthew Goff points out, uh, this error, along with other historical errors in the introduction, points to this work not actually being penned by the scribe of Jeremiah. Uh, this book is made up of a prayer, wisdom, and prophecy regarding Zion's lament, along with an encouragement for Zion in the midst of the trouble while speaking against idolatry. Basically, overall, uh, the authorship, dating, original language, etc. are all heavily debated on this book with no solid conclusions. Ultimately, the book leans on Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and a prayer from Daniel 9 to create this work that is criticized as being basically an unoriginal redaction. Thus, the book didn't have a lasting influence on Jewish thought, nor was it popularly known or respected enough to be considered canonical. Um, there doesn't seem to be any dependence upon this work in the New Testament, at least nothing that didn't already exist in the Old Testament, and the book adds little that is new to the discussion. But this book did have an influence in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and it is cited um, as if it accurately preserves more materials from Jeremiah. I think this will wrap up part two so that we don't make this episode too long. And then we will have part three that will wrap up the letter of Jeremiah additions to Daniel uh, Maccabees one through four, along with Esdras one and two and 
the prayer of Manasseh, and Psalm 151. So until then, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week. <laughs>